We come to this place for terror. We come to sinful cuts, to scream, to laugh, to cry. Because we need that, all of us, that overwhelming dread we feel when the lights begin to dim and we go somewhere we've never been before. Not just terrified, but somehow possessed, together. Horrifying images spoken directly into your ear. Kills that you can feel. Somehow, slaughter feels good in a place like this. Our slashers feel like the worst part of us. And stories feel insane and unstoppable. Because here, they are. Sinful cuts. We make horror horrible. Hey, Sinners, how you doing? I am Sean, and I'm here with... Shannon. Shannon. <laughs> we, we have none other than Andy Davidson. We are, we've already messed up our, our usual intro, but we're here with Andy Davidson, best-selling author. Uh, we're so happy to have you on tonight, Andy. Uh, we're going to be discussing the movie Near Dark. Um, before, we, before we get into that, though, what I would like to do, though, for um, our listeners out there, because I know we have a bunch of avid readers, is I'd just like to go over um, some of your novels, because I am a huge fan. So, Andy is the author of In the Valley of the Sun. This was the first one. I, I cut my teeth mm-hmm. on this one. I guess pun intended. I did, too. That, <laughs> That was Andy's debut novel, and uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a wholly original take on on a, a vampire novel, and it just it's so atmospheric, and I highly recommend it. Not just for f- people who love vampire novels or horror novels, but just people who love good literature. Next, we've got the Boatman's Daughter. The, I'm actually I'm I'm a chapter in Andy, and I have to say, I um. I was reading another book. I'm not going to mention the the title because it's actually it's a fantastic book that I was reading. It's on a lot of year end best lists for horror, but it just didn't click with me. Hmm. You know, that's a me problem. That's oh, not yeah. the author problem. It just didn't resonate. So I reached out and you helped me out. I reached out to the boatman's daughter and I literally got a paragraph in and I was like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's going to be all right. I am thoroughly enjoying it. And then lastly, we have the hollow kind. Um, you know, and people are going to think that I'm blowing smoke, but this was, this was my favorite novel of, uh, I read it last year. I know it came out in 22, but this was my favorite novel of last year. I can't say enough. I can't say enough, uh, praise about this novel. I'm hoping, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I'm hoping that someone has reached out to you to adapt this into a, a limited series because it would just – I'm thinking about it on HBO, six episodes, because there's so much there between the the, the um, contemporary story and the story set in the past. It's just incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Thanks. So. I wanted to give you I, I wanted to give you all the praise in the world. And I'm not the only one. You know, you have been you've got accolades from the New York Times, Esquire, the Wall Street Journal, the Chicago Tribune. You've ended up on NPR's best books of 2020 for the Boatman's Daughter. Um, this this is actually high praise for me. Um, I know Sadie Hartman uh, is a huge fan. And I'm a huge fan of Sadie's. So if she recommends, yeah, right. If she yeah. recommends something and says this has got to be on your your TBR. It gets bought that day. 
<laughs> Sadie has real power that way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> she really she really does. So just to let you know, Sadie is actually she's gonna be on in a couple of months. Ah, and good. um yeah, and Emily Hughes is going to be on as well, mm-hmm. and I know Emily is a huge fan. So uh, yeah, we're we're just we're we're happy to have those two guests on. But we've got you here tonight, and we want to talk about Near Dark, and uh, let's just get into it, shall we? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So I mean, the most basic question though that I've got to uh, I've got to ask any is that you had we sent you a list of movies mm-hmm. for the entire year. I mean, there's damn near twenty five movies on there. Why near dark? Um, almost out of a sense of obligation when I saw it, it was on the list. Uh, near dark is a horror movie that I genuinely love uh, so much so that I think it played a great deal into the writing of in the Valley of the sun uh, in terms of like several different ways, you know, like there was the whole Western mythos meets the vampire mythos put those two things together, horror in the West and Western. I, I just think those are amazing when you combine yeah. them um, because there's so many like great themes that you can explore, like loneliness and isolation and uh, the frontier violence. Um, but also I just near dark is, is a movie that I didn't see when it came out, it came out in 87, I think. And it, I saw it when I was in graduate school. So I was probably in my late mid mid to late twenties is which, you know, that's 20 years ago now at this point. And, um, uh, for 20 years, that movie stayed in my head, you know, and it, that's what a great movie does. Right. And so, yeah, near dark was the one that I felt like I could talk the most about without, um, embarrassing myself, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it though. Uh, especially within the Valley of the sun, as it correlates to near dark, the desolation, mm-hmm. like the, the scenes that you describe in the Valley of the Sun, just, you know, like, I don't want to call it the, like the wasteland. I don't, I don't want to upset any of our listeners who may live in, in these places, but just that, like, like that open country and just that, you know, there's no one around for miles and miles. And that, that like inherent loneliness that comes with that, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're here in New York, we don't necessarily, I mean, we're on Long Island. We definitely don't have any of that. I mean, we're stacked like cordwood here. It feels like most days, but we've got John Langan is coming on, uh, next week. Um, and I know that he lives, I believe he lives in the Hudson Valley, but there are places, there are places in the Hudson Valley that are incredibly different, but so similar Mm. as well. It's just that, that desolate loneliness, like just, wide open country and there's nothing around for miles and it's so beautiful but i also find that those places are so they can be so terrifying as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. i always think of the hudson valley as kind of the cradle of civilization when it comes to horror in american lit um you know with its roots back in like like washington irving and then that sort of thing so yeah you're absolutely right yeah. yeah, we uh Shannon and I were talking about a, a road trip uh next fall. We're gonna go to Salem soon, um, because they have the Salem Horror Fest, but we're definitely gonna do a little road trip around late September, early October uh to Sleepy Hollow because we're lucky enough to almost have it in our backyard. So it's always a good trip. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. What I, I found interesting about No, it's okay. What I found interesting about this movie about um about locations is that it you know so it's supposed to be set in oklahoma 
right? And they actually tried filming there. And they, uh, I want to say like a week prior to starting, maybe even less, Oklahoma um, actually had a very devastating flood to the point all the sets were absolutely destroyed. So they actually had to relocate to Arizona. And it was supposed Mm -hmm. to be, I think, summertime in like the Midwest anyway. And they get to Arizona, and Arizona has a um, like first on record snowstorm. <laughs> so like, they were like, it was so it was just so weird, like the elements like playing against them. So like, just um, just sometimes elements themselves can be uh, scary and devastating because like, how scary is a freaking flood, you know? Um, so, but I'm just saying with that in. All that and knowing that in mind, um, you know, Catherine Bigelow still set forth and hurried up, rebuilt the sets and to where they needed to go and uh, wherever they found it in Arizona and still made the film and it still worked beautifully. So it was definitely really meant. I just found that really interesting. It is interesting when you think when you think about like um, I had forgotten hadn't seen it in a while. I rewatched it a few days ago um, for this and I had forgotten that uh, the the movie is not Same. set in Texas. I, in my imagination, yeah. yeah, it was always Texas, but um, and so they live in Oklahoma. The family lives in Oklahoma. Uh, Caleb and mm-hmm. his, his dad, right? And and they go east into Kansas. It's got to be because he it? takes that Kansas bus. Is where you know when he when he tries to get back home, mm-hmm. he's actually got to jump on like a greyhound, and it's a long journey. So he, I think he's definitely crossed state lines for sure. And I know the father thinks they went south when the father starts to pursue them. And so to, to your point, Shannon, like it's it's just this big West, like it's this American land. It's it's not even um, in the imagination. You know, it, it's it's amazing that it, Arizona is standing in for Oklahoma and in Oklahoma, in my imagination, it was Texas. And so it's just this kind of big mythic swath of American, the American West, essentially. Yeah. You know, to both your points, there's, there's just so much geography there because that when I, I mean, I hate to show my age to the two of you because it's always, it's always so embarrassing for me how old I am, but I saw, I did see this. Uh, I saw this in 87 Port Washington movie theater here on Long Island. And um, I mean, it blew me away because this, this was two months after uh, the Lost Boys came out and the Lost Boys, just everybody was talking about it. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a big studio film, tons of marketing. It had the Corys in it. So come on. How can you not love it? Um, yeah. You know, uh, and a great soundtrack and, you know, just there was a lot of money pumped into it. And I love the Lost Boys. But when this movie came out two months later, I was like, oh, I think I found my people. I think I found, you know, I mean, this movie just really resonated with me because up until then, I mean, the closest that I, uh, the, my favorite vampire movie had probably come out two years prior, which would have been Fright Night, which I absolutely love, but it is, it's, it's high camp, you know, it's a different kind of movie. And prior to that, it was, you know, Hammer Horror and the Universal movies and maybe some amicus pictures and American international pictures. But there was nothing that felt like 
holy cow, are vampires real? I mean, should yeah, I be concerned? It had a more humanistic you know? element to it um, regarding, like, the core was the family. Even, uh, you know, Catherine Bigelow, um, you know, made a point to, to say that. And uh, I, 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 totally, I totally see see that in the film. You know, even Joshua, uh, Joshua John Miller, he was great. You know, he was only, what, like 10, 11, maybe? Yeah, I think I, I maybe Pretending twelve. Pretending to max. smoke a cigarette, you know. Yeah, he's. Yeah. The the Homer character is my favorite character, actually. Um, I mean, I. I it, one of the things that I think, as you said, makes it seem as if vampires could be real about the film is there's a verisimilitude to, the world. Um, I think about the scene where at the vending machine with Homer mm-hmm. and Caleb's sister where he he's a vampire who claims to be um, an old man trapped in a child's body. I mean, he's aged. Obviously, he was turned when he was a child, but he's he's grown older in his mind. Right. But throughout the film, he does a lot of things that sort of contradict that idea about him being an old man. He acts like a child. And so there's this great thing where he instead of attacking her at the vending machines or or taking her back to the hotel room and then attacking her with the family he actually does want to watch television with her when he invites her to come back and watch tv and so they sit down in front of the tv and he's watching tv with her and when the station goes off the air and you see the the flag waving um he's sort of frantically turning the channel trying to find something else because he's he wants to watch tv with someone he wants to have that little moment so it's that kind of thing like taking that seriously yeah you know like the it's just kind of wonderful about the film i love the fact that he's so desperate to have i think sarah is the sister he's so desperate Mm -hmm. for her not to leave because he's just even though you know he's an old man in this you know young boy's body you know no one around him is like him you know he's always going to be the outsider so i i'm with you on that i like i like homer a great deal as well Mm-hmm. So if, if it's okay with you two, I just want to go over the hard yards real quick about you know how the how the movie came to be real quickly. So Catherine Bigelow had directed The Loveless, uh, starring Willem Dafoe, mm-hmm. um, but she'd co-directed that. So this was her first. This was going to be her first solo directing effort, and she is um, she's friends with James Cameron. I don't know if they were dating at the time. They would eventually get married um, for two years which we like to call the Jim Cameron special, a good two year marriage. And he gave her, he, he basically gave her, um, you know, his crew, you know, uh, you've got Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, uh, Jeanette Goldstein. He said, look, use my ensemble. They're seasoned. They know what they're doing. You're not going to have to worry about them. So that's going to be off your plate because they'll show up ready to play. Um, the cinematographer, Adam Greenberg, had uh, done Terminator, and then he would eventually do T2 and movies like mm-hmm. Ghost. So you know, she borrowed the cinematographer as well, and then um, uh, as well as uh, some of the executive producers. And I, I think it all worked out beautifully. You know, I mean, really, really. It, it, Jim Cameron, I suppose, is a, is a great friend to have in that <clears throat> situation. But to be able to tap into like a, almost a ready-made crew – and Shannon, to your point, with all these technical disasters that happen with the weather and the sets, 
I think a lot's to be said about the fact that she had such a, a, a seasoned crew behind her. Just pick up. All right. We'll rebuild build the sets and we're ready to go. And I, I think you can see it on screen. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like a, a first movie. What's hmm. There's something so funny too. No, it's funny. It's there's something so funny too about that. Can you believe Lance Henriksen like almost like didn't do this? He was like, they gave it to Michael Bean and Bill Paxton was the one who convinced him read the script. Lance Henriksen got the most involved in his character, which is why he was even though everyone is great, he was probably the best. Uh, character because he went so deep into creating his own self story Um, do you guys know the story about the hitchhiker by the way not in the film film. so okay so when they got relocated to Arizona to begin filming Lance um, you know like he he started like doing things like growing out his hair uh, showering less and less (laughs) Um, he got acrylic nails that he uh, got put on broke off so he got you know little like rugged looks to his hands and then he decided to drive all the way by himself to this place just to kind of have like that um drifter driving experience uh and rugged look to him and so he saw a hitchhiker (laughs) on the way and picked him up and he decided to practice his character with the, the hitchhiker in the car, and, I mean, and, he, just and he told, yeah, like just like like the like basically what he does in the film, like just like the long staring at you, the just saying like you know like uh, you know I don't think he said like your face is gonna look great when it's ripped off. He didn't say things like that, but he made like the guy was like rolling a cigarette. And he's like, you're doing it wrong. Do it again. <laughs> like, so, like something along those lines. So he's just really freaking him out. And he's like, yeah, he was really freaked out. So I knew, like, I did really good with my character. <laughs> so. I'm a huge, huge. I adore Lance Henriksen. But Lance Henriksen dressed like an, a, as an accountant, I'm not getting in the car. Like, as a vampire? Are you kidding me? I just thought that was so fun. Like, if I didn't like the man already, I'm like, oh, oh just, you know. But yeah, he's 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 really great in this. The the, the stuff with um, his sort of he projects something in that character. Uh, and Je- it's Jesse. I forget his last name off the top of my head. It's um, Hooker. Yeah. Je- Hooker. Jesse Lee yeah. Hooker. Jesse Lee Hooker. Yeah. 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 He projects something that's so kind of old and at the same time, um, paternal, strangely paternal as the leader of that, that group. Um, but not in a kind of like stereotypical way. Like it's not a, he's not an abusive father. Like he has a very sort of hands-off approach to parenting in a way, you know, it's like you turned him, you're going to, he's going to, he's got so many days to get his act together and drink blood and make a kill or he's done for, but it's your responsibility. You know, it's just like, it's a wonderful character. It's very holistic the way he's um, come at him. It's not just like a one note thing. Like he's a gunslinger or a soldier. Yeah. He's so many he already different has so many things. layers. I agree. It's very yeah. layered. Yeah. It's definitely very layered. And he does not say much. Mm-hmm. He plays off. He plays off wonderfully with Bill Paxton. 
because they're they're basically at opposite ends of the spectrum in this movie. I mean, Bill Paxton, who could very well be my favorite actor, R.I.P. Still not over it. Um, but they're they're at such opposite ends of that spectrum but it works so well in the movie because you have you do have lance henderson grounding everything like you said that paternal figure um and he's you know he's he's leading his his little troop and jeanette goldstein i actually find the relationship between lance henderson and jeanette goldstein very endearing especially their death scene when she just you know they don't even look at each other they're just looking at it they know it's over and she just says fun times you know i just say it, it gets me every time <laughs> Mm-hmm. I just I, mm-hmm. I I love the dynamic of of the vampire family. I guys I'm, I I I'm, I hope you don't both gang up on me, but I really feel that the weakest part of the movie are the lovers. Not that they don't have a not that they're I mean, look, it, it it's hard it's hard when you have three character actors like, you know, Paxton and, and Goldstein and Henriksen when you're played against that, I think it's, I think it's almost unfair, you know? Um, but yeah, Caleb, Caleb comes off a little boring in comparison. Um, you know, cause he's got, he's, he's the one who's got to move our story along. So he doesn't really get to have, um, he's so reactionary. He doesn't really get to have the flashy part, which I always, I always have a, you know, the space in my heart for Cause when you're the straight man, you don't get to have the funny lines, you know, that's the hardest, that's the hardest job on set, I suppose. But yeah, Caleb, Caleb, unfortunately for me is probably the weakest part, but it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard when you have such a dynamic vampire. Say, family, how do you compete you know? with Bill Paxton and his character that he came up with? How do you, how do you, how do you, you can't beat that yeah. or overshadow that. You can't. <laughs> now, I would, I would just say in defense of Caleb that like you need the Bill Paxton character, right. To, to play against that. So like without, with, with, if Caleb weren't Caleb, then the Bill Paxton character might not seem, Severin might not seem so, broad and and frightening you know he might seem silly in a way that i mean he's obviously gets laughs in the film for the things he does he's being over the top sometimes but Mm. at the same time he's really frightening um and it's because caleb is so normal and so kind of um just this white bread kid from from uh the the dust belt you know um that I think it really works. So I, I don't know. Like I, I like, I like the romance in, in the film. And I, I think part of it is because the acting is so good. Um, even if the characters are a little bit thinner and I, I think you're right. They, they certainly don't have the layers maybe that the other characters do. But I think that when you, when you look at the way the directing and the visuals support that romance. So like, um, I'm thinking about the whole early courtship scene where the first few shots in the film are about Caleb when he wakes up from his nap and he slaps the bug on his wrist and he gets in his truck at sundown and he drives off to find trouble in a small town on a Saturday night or whatever. And there's this kind of restless energy that the film has, like these short shots and these quick cuts. Yeah. And he he gets into the scrap with the kids uh, who are, I guess, friends of his, but it's unclear. Like, are they friends in that sort of, it's almost like a pack of dogs nipping at each other the way they, it feels like he's they stuck almost, with them. 
Yeah. And they almost get into it, you know, yeah. but it's over nothing. And so there's this, this sense of energy that he has. And then when we see, um, May, it's yeah. May, right? Yeah. May. Yeah. When we see, when we see May for the first time through his point of view, suddenly it's slow mm. motion. Like it's just this really subtle, slow motion shot of her walking out on that sidewalk with the, with the ice cream in her hand. And uh, it's like, everything just slows down in his world. And the movie is full of what for me are those kinds of um, lyrical touches that come about in an almost poetic way through the, through the camera, through the directing, through Bigelow. And so I, I, I love her as a director. I think she's fascinating. She's really great. Um, and she does such interesting stuff. And, but, but near dark is my favorite of her films because it has, uh, so much. I, I just, like there's poetry in it. You know, there's, there's real poetry to the way she directs in this film. Um, Mm-hmm. Oh, I couldn't agree with the two of you more. I mean, you can really see it. This is this is the foundation of what she would then go on to do in in you know the movies that followed. But again, I I still can't wrap my head around that this was. I, mean, I know she co-directed The Loveless, but this was really a solo effort. You know, her first you know go at it. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, Andy, here we go. It's the <laughs> Letting Charlie out. <laughs> oh, okay. How'd <laughs> she go? There you go, pal. But you know, it's it's just psychologically, my dog makes me feel like I'm not interesting <laughs> when he leaves halfway through the podcast. <laughs> I do everything for this dog. He can't do me one favor and stick around for an hour. It's okay. It gave me a really good look at your posters behind you, which are oh. amazing. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, I I don't know if my wife is thrilled with the purchases every now and then. She's very supportive, very very supportive. But yeah, right. yeah you know, she's like anything shows up in a cylindrical tube, I have some explaining to do. Like, <laughs> you know, we all look, we all have our passions. But I I I Andy, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I'll apologize for mm-hmm. it. I'm going to put you on the spot because you know you're our author. Because we're we're talking about the the um, the characters, you have our lovers, and you have then the the our family. We'll call them that. As an author, do you find that it's more exciting to write the villains? You know, like the like those Bill Paxtonish and Lance Henriks, Lance Henriksen type of characters because they're so because there's so much meat on the bone, so to speak. Or do you? Mm. Do you like to write the quieter characters that drive the, the story forward? It's not so much a preference as to one or the other, like which one do I like to write them the, the better of the two. But I would say that the, the quieter characters who drive the story forward, the good characters are always harder to write. Yeah. Sometimes the villains write themselves. Um, and when they do things, you always know why they do them. The villains have a clear motivation. They're, they're always certainties in your head. And um, the, the good characters are much more difficult, especially when you're dealing with characters who, um, 
you don't really know what they want. Um, in the case of like uh, the the two main characters, the lovers in this film, uh, Caleb and May, um, it's clear what each one wants, although they don't seem to know what they want until they find it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, the beautiful thing about a, a, the horror genre is that the good characters can be villains too. There's no, um, or at least they can have aspects of, of the bad, right? So um, nobody in life is 100% one way or the other. The, the, the dichotomy of dark and light is something we kind of assign happily to fantasy or something, you know? Um, I, I think in horror, part of the pleasure of that genre for me is that everyone somehow is bad. Um, whether it's the way they treat their kid or the way they, um, ditch a friend somewhere or leave someone dangling for something, or they don't, they don't do something they're supposed to do, or they just have dark, horrible thoughts that they don't tell people about. Um, you know, that, that genre. And, And in this movie, I think one of the, you were talking about what's weak about this film. If for me, I've always had a question over the ending of this film in my mind. Um, oh, let me you know, hear we, it. Well, we, we, we don't often see, and this is a, uh, you could praise the film for this too, that it's very rare. I can't think of any other examples off the top of my head where you see a cure for mm. vampirism introduced in the third act, right? Yeah. Where they get a happy ending. And I, again, Bigelow does it well. Um, and I think it's an interesting idea that's introduced because there is that precedent for it, like in Stoker with blood transfusions and whatnot, but they don't work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I do question that aspect of the film because it is a horror film. Um, and I wonder about that. I've always wondered about the ending of the movie, if that was always an Eric Red script or if someone came to him and said, you know, this would be better if they live and they get to be, you know, people. So I don't know. I mean, certainly with Caleb that works in the third act because he gets to be the hero. Um, But there is almost nothing he does as a vampire in the third act that he couldn't have done uh, or as a person that he couldn't have done as a vampire in the third act in standing up to the family and whatnot. Yeah, totally. So anyway, um, No, I, I was just saying that that's a it's a really good question. It is interesting, um, especially when you um, think about the dynamics of the cure. I mean, if there is a cure, I mean, Daybreakers came up with you know, oh, you just got to burn in the sun for for three seconds, and <laughs> so I don't know if that's any better or worse. Um, <laughs> I guess um, I don't know. I guess because. Just me and not thinking about it. My mind is actually literally going right now. But I don't. I guess it's because they. It's a. It started off as like a hybrid film, and like they never really. It almost like they never really went full vampire. If if um if that makes any sense. I know we did the sunlight thing. Um, you know they could. Um, I mean spitting out bullets. I think was was different, right? That's not really something I've really saw before. Um. 
and they, they never say the words they, to my knowledge that they, they don't have the they don't have teeth you know they don't have like everything about a vampire is kind of like kind of thrown out other than the immortality and the and the, the sunlight um there's almost no mythology yeah. that we like you know the the typical mythology that we grew up on with the hammer and the universal there's almost none of that in the movie except for you know you can uh turn and bleed a person i mean jesse's got crosses on his on his revolvers um i don't know that I really didn't look to see if there's any reflection, but they just do away. Uh, uh, Catherine Bigelow said they just want to do away with all of the pre-existing mythology and kind of create I, their I own. I think and that was a part. And of, they really did. Yeah. I think that was just a part mm-hmm. of them creating their own version of whatever this creature technically was. We know it more of a vampiric aspect, but like, it's never mentioned in the film. They don't, they don't, I mean, they don't, they don't ever say it, right? Like what we are, we're just, right. They just, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was one of the things that I stole from this film for my book uh, in the Valley of the Sun was just don't use the word. And I think it's that was partly a practical decision on my part, because you can't get a literary agent to read your book if you query them telling them you've written a vampire (laughs) novel. Um, But uh, maybe that's changed now. I don't know. But um, I was thinking about the ending, too, in light of what you're saying, Shannon. You know, it's like. You could almost read the ending of this as ambiguous in a way. I mean, there's a question of if they are returned to this normal state as humans, there's a shot at the end. I think it's May's face has this very sort of she she kind of cringes away from the light when she sees it for the first time and he tells her it's okay. And they embrace. But I, I do sort of remember this moment of this idea just in in my head of like well will it be okay did yeah. this really work will or is this back? you know could this have yeah it could revert back it's, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and what is she losing as a character what is she losing by becoming human again you know she when we first meet her she's so in love with the night and the idea of of how things sound and yeah. feel and smell and and it's yeah. It's, a, yeah. Mean, Andy, did you see um, Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I feel like he's a big near dark fan because it seems like he did visually what May describes in the movie. Um, how you know, when in Midnight Mass? Sorry, sinners, spoilers for you know. Midnight Mass. Well, no, not whole spoilers, but yeah, yeah, you should watch it. But when the when people are turned and they, they go out into the night, everything is like you know there, there's halos around everything. It's just visually spectacular. You know, it, it, he really sells it that it's not that it's not that bad to be besides killing people and drinking blood. It's not that bad to be a vampire. I mean, it's just euphoric. Right. You know, I thought he really, really nailed that. But mm-hmm. I want to I want to circle back real quick to, to one tidbit that I picked up in the research for the film. And and Andy, this goes to your point about did Eric Red have a different ending in mind? Because there is an alternate script version where Sarah, the sister, because mm-hmm. she, you know, uh, she's taken by Homer after the conclusion of, uh, you know, the, the vampire families destroyed. They go back to the house and and Sarah walks out into the daylight and starts to burn. So it 
alludes to the fact that she's been turned by Homer. So I'm thinking there's there's the framework there that there was more of a nihilistic ending, you know, than mm-hmm. what 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 we saw. Which, you know, as a horror fan, I'm I'm all for that. You know, the, the bleaker <laughs> and more and if everyone can be sad at the end of the movie, that's that's where I'm at. Unfortunately, like Black daughter. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? did did they film that that they didn't Uh, no no it was it was just on the page oh but so what they had done though is uh i i guess this was after either the final script that they shot or after it was actually shot because what they had done was they painted themselves in the corner because they're like there's no there's no stakes to this because she can just be cured with with the transfusion now because that's mm-hmm. where you know the, that's the groundwork that we've yeah. laid out. So, yeah. but I'm I'm with you though. I, I think these are these are half measures. But I do love the fact that they do away with all of the mythology and they do create their own. And it really, I mean, it 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 presents vampirism as not a supernatural phenomenon, but more, this was, this is a true disease. And I mean, this came out in 87. So we were, we were still very well in, in the throes of the AIDS epidemic. You know, so this is very much a, a metaphor for that. You know, you've got your two lovers meeting and, 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 you know, it's, it's more stolen kisses and, and, you know, not full sex, but I mean, you know, they, they are, they're young, stupid kids. You know, yeah, and they're making. Very, yeah, sorry. it's a very chaste uh, romance uh, in that regard. Um, but she wraps it all up. They wrap it all up in the sort of trappings of a fairy tale in the end, too. That that just sort of occurred to me that you essentially have the the prince saving um, uh, the Sleeping Beauty character here, you know, from eternal sleep in, in a kind of metaphorical way at the end of this. And it could have been, yeah, it could have so, been just a yeah. way to bookend um, like the the story, like where you know it, it started off with with them. This is where why we end, you know, why end, why Caleb ended up where he was. Then we deal with the core, which is the family, and then it, but it ends with with them essentially because it started with them. So I'm wondering if it's just just kind of wanted to go. Does that make sense? I don't know. Um, if she just Bigelow just wanted to chose chose mm-hmm. to do that yes. kind of ending for that reason, so that's kind of how I saw that. Honestly, let me ask you two: Did you two like the fact that the the gender roles were really swapped because we had a female vampire turning a, a male? Where typically, I mean, for decades, it was the exact opposite. Yeah, I liked it enough. I stole it from my book. So yeah, I'm, I'm wondering now if it was an inspiration to let the right one in. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh boy! Mm. No, now you've got my head spinning. How do you like? How do you like that film, Andy? Do you like that? I, I yeah, I, I love it. Um, I like the the original Swedish film and the novel um, immensely. The 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 remake, the American remake mm-hmm. that Matthew Vaughn did, I think. Is, is okay. It's okay. But there's a lot more complexity in the Swedish film. For um, sure. Yeah. And there's a whole sequence in that film in the book, I think more so than in the, the film actually that inspired part of in the Valley of the sun too. So yeah, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. I was watching everything I could get my hands on when I wrote that book. And so um, all of this stuff kind of like 
seeped in there. Um, but yeah, I love those films, uh, especially the, the first one. Here I am putting you on the spot again, but I have to ask. I have to. Okay. Besides the films that we just discussed, Let the Right One In and Near Dark, what other vampire films are you just absolute fan of? Um, I'm a big Hammer fan, so anything with Christopher Lee, pretty much, although they get kind of goofy. Uh, but The Horror of Dracula is hands down my favorite Dracula film. Um, I like Stoker, uh, not Stoker, Coppola's Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a huge Keanu Reeves apologist uh, for Jonathan Parker. Um, anybody who says that that movie is not better for having Keanu Reeves in it is wrong. Um, so, uh, yeah, you you mentioned uh, you, you mentioned Lost Boys. I'm a big fan of that. Um, Fright Night. Those are great. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything kind of weird or obscure off the top of my head. I can't, but um, I like the, the was it 1978 adaptation of of Salem's Lot for TV? Oh, please. That's that, catnip yeah. for me. Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? And, yeah. and, and the, the, the one thing about Salem's Lot that always gets me um, is that uh, Toby Hooper is – when people mention Salem's Lot, they hardly ever mention Toby Hooper, you know? Mm-hmm. And he did such a – up job on that miniseries it was so great again i'm gonna i'm gonna show my it's such a sad night for me because i'm showing my age all over the place that miniseries came out and i think it was on cbs and cbs did something that i will never forgive them for they they debuted it on a monday and then they showed the second part on a thursday it was so far apart like you know it it, did i'm it, it, it makes my teeth hurt to this day, but I, you know, I guess in my heart, I'll forgive them at some point, but not yet, not yet. But Salem, Salem's Lot is a huge, huge one for me. Oh, okay. So let me ask the both of you. With vampires, it seems like we have two, we have two different camps. Well, three, really. You've got, like your novel, you kind of create your own. You know, you create you 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 create a a little bit of a Nosferatu and and a little bit of a contemporary, and you you know you mix that together, but you have your your um your master Nosferatu vampires from like Salem's Lot and Nosferatu, of course. Then you've got you know going all the way forward, you've got your Twilight and your and your interview with a vampire and the seductive vampire, and even even Bella Lugosi. I mean, he he had heads swooning all over the place back then. So, what is your vampire? For me, I like to, I do appreciate the more, uh, you know, the Nosferatu, the the real. I there's no seduction whatsoever. It's just I, you know, I went down the wrong corridor, and now I'm going to pay for it dearly. <laughs> hmm. Um. Well, this is going to be funny. Um, I guess I would have two answers. Like there's the the inner child. So the inner child says my vampire is uh, Dracula in the Monster Squad. Monster Squad. Okay. 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 Just straight down the road. 
the cliche sort of rebirth of the yeah. Bela Lugosi Dracula, right? Like he's got the medallion, he's got the Count's outfit, everything. But he's terrifying in a way that Lugosi never is. Oh, he's um, nasty business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about that scene at the end where he grabs the little girl and holds her up oh, and says, give me yeah. the amulet, you bitch. And it's so terrifying because he he hisses at her that with his terrifying. teeth. And it's like nothing I've ever I, – I still to this day, I don't think I've ever seen anything yeah. right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrifying. So there's that. Like that's everything that Dracula, that vampire can be. And then there's – I don't know if there's a prototype for it. I mean there's – certainly there's May and Near Dark or there's – I mean I, I've seen every episode of Buffy and I'm trying to think of like uh, maybe the Drusilla vampire, the sort of gothic – yeah. vampire the willowy gothic vampire there's the but i it, when i was writing rue i was just thinking more along the lines of like what kind of what would a what would a what would a vampire be who is out on her own in a wilderness in a place that's inhospitable to her where the sun shines so bright um and I think it's like, it's just pure predator, mm-hmm. you know, like a, yeah. a, a survival instinct. And so, um, I don't know. I, there's the, so there's those opposite ends of the vampire is just the, the pure monster that is out to drink blood. And then there is the, the sort of archetypal va- uh, vampire that it has potential be- too. So. No, it's okay. I was, I was just going to say, like, I think lately for me, maybe because of how it, it, it probably is Twilight's fault. <laughs> not not going to lie. Um, that I, I've like, it's like the whole like seductiveness, like there's definitely still some good stories that involve that. Um, but I'm thinking I'm more converting more to like, just like the, the, the monster like that. That's like the best part I think about let the right one in, right. That she's, alone she she you know in the book anyway she only comes across one vampire in her 250 year span so like they're very rare they're very unknown like you, mm. nothing's nothing's known about them um so it's just it just has a more like intrigue i guess the mystery to me and then you have ones like um like 30 days of night where they're just fucking they're oh. like rabid rats on uh, yeah, like, and they were just so exciting yeah. to me, um, constantly hunting, and yeah, that was I I love that film, um, and I'll always go back to the boys too because they were just you know they were predators too they just had a little bit more fun because they were you know eighties you know <laughs> you know hey that. That that's my generation. You leave, you leave that to me. I was alive well, the, then. Okay, you just. I was just thinking, like the vamp. The vampire is is a chameleon. It can be anything and everything. It's it's a it's a great. You know, when you think about a monster like a werewolf, it's a little harder to hang a lot of different metaphors on a werewolf. A werewolf is pretty much one to two things about humanity if you want to do a sort of metaphoric thing, um, which is not to disparage werewolves. There's some wonderful mm-hmm. werewolves out there, but when you're dealing with vampires, they can be so much. I mean, thinking about lost boys, you've got like the, 
you've got the punk rock sort of uh, rejects from society. Uh, near dark, you've got the sort of family unit that's nomadic and dispossessed. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's something almost like, I don't know, Steinbeckian about that. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it it can go so many different ways with vampires. The only successful vampires that I know of are it's interview with a vampire, you know, someone who took, took their skill set and, you know, (laughs) made a fortune off of it, you know? Mm -hmm. I always have a I always have a bit of a problem with um, the seductive vampire. Although, let me tell you, I mean Christopher Lee, I'll kiss his <laughs> face all day long. And the hammer, the litany of hammer horror beauties that that turned into vampires, please, you know, I, I can't get enough. But I always think that underneath that, it's it, it's like a it's a person mask because underneath that, they're dead. You know, and and it's not their real face. And I think that um, Let the Right One In showed this very subtly in the film that you could see um, the true nature of Ellie with uh, like when she's licking the blood and the elongated tongue or the the shining eyes like a raccoon or or a dog, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. I just I I always know in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, this as good looking as it is in the front deep down it's yeah. no bueno Very dark. You know? yeah <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. not to say that if a hammer horror beauty uh, you know came and wanted to bite my neck or christopher lee i look i'll take hey, all comers have at it it's very delicious white irish skin it's all yours <laughs> Speaking of white Irish, um, we've left out in our recitation of vampires, um, Colin Farrell, of course, from the remake of Fright Night. Uh, Pretty effective remake, actually. I loved it. Yeah. I really, really did. Um, I, I, you know, it kind of got the, well, you know what? I think it did okay, but I think people tend to lean more into the, the 85, but I thought it was fun. I thought it was, mm-hmm. he was just—he was just having a blast. Um, well, and it's, it's another example too of how you can take a vampire and just put something else on him. So, you know, and this—it's sort of this tale of like the neighbor, who the man who lives next door, who's mysterious, um, you know, and that itself is a trope that's in horror down through the ages for various uh, types of stories, you know. So, um, this—the scary neighbor next door, but. Um, yeah, so I, I'm going to ramble about that one, but um, yeah, that's okay. Shannon's used to it with me as her co-host. <laughs> but let's let's wrap up the movie portion with um, you know just unfortunately uh, the the movie took a bit to find an audience. It, you know, in '87 it got released. It did come come out two two months after Lost Boys, so. It, it, it really, it was, uh, let's see, it was $5 million budget, and I think it made 3.5 domestically. So, you know, it wasn't a hit. Like, a ton of the movies that we talk about on this podcast, it took decades to find an audience. Um, but it really has. It 
absolutely has. I mean, it's listed at, on on uh, you know horror movies that you the top ten of horror movies that you may have missed that you actually that you absolutely need to see. You know, um, some of the best horror movies that have ever been made. I mean, Catherine Bigelow has gone on to incredible success. Uh, I hear Jim Cameron's done okay, you know, for his contribution to it. Um, so I, I'm I'm always elated when a film like this finally finds its audience and its home. Uh, which it did. So that'll that'll wrap up near dark. Now we're going to get into um, fun for me and Shannon. I don't know about for you, Andy, but we get to ask you our three stupid questions. So the first one would be, uh, give us your scariest horror movie experience. So it could be the film itself, where you saw it, how you felt afterwards. Have at it. When I was, um, I took a year between my undergraduate uh, degree and my graduate degree. So I was, I was living at home with my parents for about a year of doing a, a job on campus, like with PR or something. And so I would have these days, at least two days a week where I wouldn't have to drive into campus. And one of the things that I spent my time doing uh, was sitting in my room watching rented movies from the video store in town. And, um, for some reason, I don't know why, I had made it to my um, 23rd year on Earth without seeing The Exorcist. Oh, no. And I, I, was, I was sitting at home alone watching The Exorcist. And I want to say it was the director's cut or some kind of DVD that had come out that uh, with extra footage. And there's, there's the scene when Reagan comes down the stairs with her head backwards or she's on her hands it's very horrific and grotesque and she's contorted and um i had an actual physical reaction where i recoiled from the screen and the only other time that's ever happened was when i saw twin peaks for the first time uh, okay it was a few years later and um I was watching an episode on VHS that I had borrowed from a friend. And it was the episode where Bob finally shows up in Laura Palmer's bedroom. And he, he comes over the edge of the bed. We see yeah. him. No, it's the couch. We see he's in the living room. We see oh, yeah. him. And I think it might be Sarah Palmer that sees him. I don't know if it's Laura, but we see him at one end of the room, cut back to Sarah then he's closer to the camera. He's behind the couch. And then suddenly he's crawling over the couch. And um, that scared the bejesus out of me. And I, I did the same thing where I kind of just drew yeah, back from the TV. Coiled, so I, yeah. yeah, that's a very rare reaction from me. But it's happened twice in my life. So there it is. Aren't horror movies great? It's mm -hmm. <laughs> the best. Okay. So question number two. Give us a movie that that people generally think are is pretty bad, but you'll defend to the death. Howard the Duck. That's a great answer. That's a wonderful I love answer. It. <laughs> I love that okay. movie. That is the great easiest, answer. Easiest question in the world. I wonder if I wonder if he's gonna have the same answer for question number three. Next question. <laughs> Andy, I, 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 I'm going to bug you now for weeks and months and possibly years to get back on this podcast, and we're going to do a Howard the Duck. I absolutely I love, love this as Howard All the right. Duck. Absolutely. Consider it, consider it done. I cannot wait. All right, oh, Howard. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love that you had that one already and you had that holster and you were ready. I've had that question put to me before. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I, we go on road trips, we play games. One of the things we play is name five movies that everyone says is crap that you love. And Howard the Duck That's is always me. at the top of that list. So, so wonderful yeah, answer. I'm jealous of his answer. Easy. That's fantastic. <laughs> I know. I know. You and I hemmed in hard forever. Okay. And then the third question is um, uh, a remake that you would love to see happen. Uh, uh, you, you could just do the remake, but if you want to get in into the weeds of it, uh, who directs it? It can be living and deceased and who stars in it again, can be living and deceased or deceased. Hmm. Well, we're actually already getting um, a remake of Nosferatu directed by Robert Eggers. Yeah, so very excited. I'm not, that might have actually been one of my answers. Um, a remake of anything, and whoever could Your direct it directs it. Paul's movie. <laughs> Don't have, yeah. That's a tough one. I'm trying to think of movies that I, I feel like weren't done right, you know? And it's most of the movies I love, I always feel like they were done right or. They were, they were done the way they should have been done. You know, I'm, I'm very much a accept the thing for what it is and judge it for whether it works or not on its own kind of standards. So that's a tough one for me. There's a couple of those 70s because I know you're you're a Hammer fan like I am. There's a mm -hmm. couple of those early 70s Hammers that I wouldn't mind having another go at. Scars of Dracula comes to mind. Possibly. Dracula, uh, 1978. AD. That one. Yeah. AD. The poster for that has all the promise in the world. It's an amazing poster. Um, a friend and I have had this conversation, but the movie is very, <laughs> does not live up to the poster kind of thing, I think. So maybe something like that. But but again, it's like, I'm, I'm such a, it, this is even a hard thing for me to do hypothetically, because I do sort of sincerely believe in the thing that existed when it existed is the yeah, thing that leave it, it alone. is. I get that. <laughs> We should love it and respect it. So I, I absolutely I think, get that. You know, when we talked about it the last time, I think I was just going on with like, what haven't we seen in a while? And, you know, maybe enough time has passed. So it's not that I, you know, want it to flush out the rest of them. I just think like maybe just like a new take could happen. My answer was Dorian Gray the last time we went over this. Which I'm I like, loved. Because I'm I like, loved. we haven't gotten one in, in a while. And we were talking about Penny Dreadful. And that's probably the Reeve Carney. Don't get me wrong. He did an amazing job with that, but it was like a snippet, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that's how I saw the answer. Not that I want to squash anything else. Um, oh, I've got my answer. That's you, oh, you've, right. you've inspired my answer. Um, you, you said Dorian Gray, and I'm going to go with the league of extraordinary gentlemen. Oh, please. Um, yes. Thank you. Yeah. That is the, piece of garbage that shouldn't exist in the world and if it had been done differently maybe it could have been great but then again what of alan moore's has ever been made that actually lived up to his source material so i'm with maybe you anything <laughs> I'm with i like it and that that would need to be i feel like that would need to be like a 12 episode miniseries yeah, right. Maybe, right, yeah. right so okay 
that brings us to the end of our movie discussion. But Andy, I am I'm, I'm biting through my knuckle the whole episode long just to ask you what you have that you want to talk about. Yeah. What projects are on the horizon? Um, well, the next book that's coming out is tentatively scheduled for summer 2025, and it um, is very appropriate to our conversation here. It's called the robot, uh, the vampire, and the robot. Um, which takes its title from a poster that's playing at a movie theater in the original blob starring Steve McQueen. And when everyone runs out of the theater, that's the poster starring Bella Lugosi, uh, which this movie doesn't exist, but I've always thought that was such a great idea. Again, the poster has potential. So I thought, well, I'll try to write a book that lives up to that idea. So that's phenomenal. Okay. So the vampire and the robot, Coming summer 2025. Hopefully. Andy, thank you so much for coming on. We truly appreciate it. Shannon, unfortunately, I think she got she got bumped. But uh, this was so kind of you to come on. And uh, what we'll do is we'll eagerly look for all your works in the future. And we'll promote the hell out of them for you. Hey, sinners, just a little uh, postscript here. We lost the last two minutes of audio with Andy. I promise you, he did say goodbye. He's such a gentleman, and he was an absolute gem. Cannot wait to have him back on the podcast. We're we're going to bug him to come back and talk about Howard the Duck. That was, a, that was not an empty threat. I promise you. Um, please, please support Andy. His novels are fantastic. Again, they are in the Valley of the Sun, the boatman's daughter, and his latest was the hollow kind. They are incredible, and I promise you a good scary time. So thank you, Andy, so much for coming on. We truly enjoyed ourselves. And this episode is going to drop on Tuesday, February 6th. Um, again, we had a great time with Andy. I hope you enjoy the episode. And coming up the following week, uh, we are going to be talking to John Langan, author of The Fisherman. And that novel is incredibly scary. And it has uh, been successful in making me scared of all bodies of water. So thanks a lot, John. Appreciate it. I live on an island. There you go. All right, gang. So, uh, you know, uh, Shannon unfortunately got bounced, so I guess I've got to do her job for her. And that is a cut.